Fozzie, you got us into this mess. You are responsible for it. If anything goes wrong here, Fozzie. Yes, sir. You are fired. I fired? Fi fired? Oh, no. Oh, my nerves are shot. Still, what could go wrong? I mean, the, uh, the stage is set. The star has arrived. Fozzie. The audience is happy. The theater's on fire. The theater's on fire. The theater's on fire! Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson, all the way from San Francisco, California. How you doing, Nick? Oh, playing that game, living that life. Maybe 2022 will be our year. Will be our year. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and then lunaticdaring.com. Nice-looking little website I've made with Squarespace where you can check out our bibliography, our watch list, and, of course, it has all of our episodes. We are currently going through the third season of The Muppet Show, two episodes at a time. And uh, tonight we got a couple of what I thought were really, really fun episodes. It also feels a little bit like a return to form. Like, we don't – I don't think we saw the canteen for either of these episodes. It, it did feel more like a, a season two and not in a bad way. Yeah, I, I've been whistling Rocky Top to myself all week, but uh, let's go ahead and get started. Let's get this started. Hey, Nick, you watched a lot of Hee Haw when you were a kid? Assuming that's not a euphemism, no. You never watched Hee Haw. Do you know what Hee Haw is? Uh, never even heard anybody make fun of it? No. So you probably had no clue who Roy Clark was. None whatsoever. Roy Linwood. Clark was born April 15th, 1933 in Marin, Virginia, uh, one of five children. His father was a tobacco farmer because, well, you know, Virginia. But during the Depression, he took a job uh, in New York, so they moved there. And uh, then when Roy was 11, the family picked up and relocated to the Washington Highlands neighborhood of Washington, D.C., which is about 15 miles south of the Henson's house in Maryland. Roy's father, Hester, Got a job working at the D.C. Naval Yard, but was also a semi-professional musician who played banjo, fiddle, and guitar. His mother also played piano. So, you know, a very musical family, like Roy actually says in the episode. Hester passed on his musical knowledge to his son, starting him off with the ukulele in elementary school and graduating to the guitar at 14, as well as banjo and mandolin. And he was real good at all of them. In 1947 and 1948, when Roy was still a teenager, he won the National Banjo Championship and even toured with a band when he was 15. So he was like the best banjo player in the country when he was 14 years old. While he was in high school, country western music was kind of not in vogue, so he got kind of he was kind of ostracized, but DC had a healthy country scene and Roy started playing venues with another guitarist, Carl Lucat. At 16, Roy made his TV debut on a local DC network show and he played the Grand Old Opry for the first time at 17 years old, having been invited after winning his second banjo title. He also learned to play the fiddle and the 12-string guitar at that time. He toured the country doing county fairs and small theaters and would sometimes play bigger venues in support of more famous acts. At 23, he got his pilot's license and bought his first airplane, a 1953 Piper Tripacer. He would be an avid flyer for his entire life. 
1954, Clark became the lead guitarist of our buddy Jimmy Dean's band, the Texas Wildcats. Roy, what you gonna pick for us, boy? Let's try an old one called John Henry. That's fine, that's fine, let's go. He competed in a show called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which was a CBS variety show. He came in second. And in 1957, Roy was fired by Jimmy Dean uh, for always being late. Jimmy was notoriously punctual. Uh, Roy went to Vegas after that, working as a guitarist in a Western swing band and was in the backing band for singer Wanda Jackson during what Wikipedia calls her, quote, rockabilly phase. Jimmy Dean was asked to guest host The Tonight Show in 1960 after Jack Parr left, and he brought on Roy with him to play a couple of songs on one of the episodes. Roy wouldn't be on The Tonight Show solo for another three years. He toured with Wanda Jackson. He played the Golden Nugget in Vegas. He eventually became a headliner there. He signed with Capitol Records in 1962 and released his first solo album called The Lightning Fingers of Roy Clark. He would release nearly 50 albums over the course of his career. By the early 70s, Clark was the highest paid country music star in the U.S. He did some acting, too. He had a recurring role on the Beverly Hillbillies and appeared in an episode of The Odd Couple. But it was in 1969 when Clark and singer Buck Owens were signed to be the hosts of the syndicated country-themed sketch comedy program Hee Haw that Clark became a household name. Welcome to Hee Haw, starring Buck Owens and Roy Clark. Yeehaw aired from 69 to 97, and Roy co-hosted 316 of the show's 332 episodes. And you're probably too young to remember this, if you're listening, but Yeehaw was huge, with a peak viewership of around 30 million people. In 1983, Roy founded the Roy Clark Celebrity Theater in Branson, Missouri the first venue linked to a known celebrity in a town that is now full of them. He played Branson a lot in the 80s and 90s. He was only married once to Barbara Joyce Rupert from 1957 to Clark's death in 2018 from complications of pneumonia in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2009. And boy, could he play guitar.
Yeah, Hee Haw was this. Uh, imagine, uh, I know you've never really watched it, but remember when we talked about Laughing? Yes. Imagine Laughing, but with like bales of hay in overalls. Okay. It was a country music tinged Laughing. And so all the music was country, all the humor was kind of down home stuff. But it was a very popular, it was a syndicated show. And yeah, the best I can explain it is it's like it's it's a hillbilly laugh-in. It was a lot of fun. There's one song that is questionable. I know which one you're talking about. I loved it, but for the wrong reasons. This is The Muppet Show, episode number 303, with special guest star Roy Clark. Produced late February 1978, and in the UK, premiered in March 19th, 1978, and then not till September in the US. It's directed by Peter Harris, written by Jewel Bailey, Hinkley, Henson, and Langham. So in our cold open, Roy is uh, Roy's getting all gussied up in his, in his cowboy outfit. Roy's a country singer. Uh, if you didn't get that, I did a terrible job. But he uh, he's getting ready to, to go out there, and Scooter, of course, checks in on him. Roy! Oh, Roy Clark! 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Clark! Thank you, buddy. Uh, and by the way, I've got a question. I've got the cowboy suit that I'm supposed to be wearing, but where's the pair of chaps? Now, the first thing I thought of when I thought of chaps is I thought of Prince. Fair. But that's uh, the wrong Muppet show. And then, of course, at that moment when he asks where his chaps are, two very proper British gentlemen come in. Hello, hello, hello. Where are the pair of chaps you asked to pop around? Hello, hello, hello. It's a far cry from Oklahoma. Right over the kids' heads. Just right over my kids' heads. They had no idea what a chap was. I thought it was funny. It's a pretty tidy joke, yeah. So we get to the Muppet show theme, and for the first time we see uh, something new. Uh, you, you know, we talked about how there's in, in the opening for this season, there is that new moment where the audience calls back to the stage, asking them to get things started. After that was always a little Stetler and Waldorf bit. But some episodes during the season are going to have other kind of jokes that they put in that spot, right, right in that spot, right after the why don't we get things started. And this time, you know, it's Scooter standing stage right. And he calls up to like the lighting crew. And this is actually very... It's actually smart for this episode that he's making note of the fact that they have like a lighting crew and stuff. He looks up and he calls up to the lighting crew and he says, Hey, somebody kill that light. And the light falls to the ground. All right. So our backstage story starts right away as opposed to the second episode we're going to talk about. Kermit comes out to introduce the show and he's introducing Roy Clark and he's like, Hey, our show is going country tonight because our special guest is one of the world's greatest country music stars, Mr. Roy Clark. And Fozzie wearing what I can only say is kind of a Davy Crockett cap. That raises uncomfortable questions. About the naming of the cap? No, about the fact that he's wearing a, a cap that might be made out of a raccoon. Yeah. Do we ever see the characters from the uh, For What It's Worth ever again? Fair point. Actually, we do. We see some of them in this episode, but still. But I, um, I don't remember if we saw a raccoon or not. Maybe not. Yeah. So so Fozzie comes out wearing basically a Davy Crockett hat. All right, to the country. Let's go. Everybody, come and get dressed. To the country. Uh, when I said that the show was going country, just because Mr. Roy Clark is our oh, guest. Oh, yeah, one of my favorite performers. Yeah, well, I didn't mean it would actually be Al Fresco. Oh, he's good, too. Of course, Fozzie has has uh, misinterpreted the phrase, we're going country. That would be fine, except for Fozzie apparently has told all of the stagehands that they're going to the country, and they've already left. So Fozzie somehow has the power to organize the crew and get them to another location. Why would they ever listen to the bear? I think they did it mostly to troll the bear. I feel like Fozzie's the only one that wasn't in on the joke. They were just they were just happy to get a day off. We already know this theater's a union shop. Weirdly. And this, this episode's full of great Kermit and Fozzie yelling at each other sequences. Mm-hmm. 
like just great back and forths with uh, Jim and Frank. And he basically tells Fozzie, Fozzie he's like, Fozzie, who's going to who's going to shift the scenery? And I'm just doing the best I can. But now, who's going to shift the scenery? Fozzie, what? You are going to shift the scenery. I am going to shift the scenery. Fozzie. I am going to shift the scenery. <laughs> and uh, so now, so the backstage story is basically like Kermit's been like, you know what, Fozzie, you screwed this up. You are now the crew. So you're responsible for everything the crew would, would be responsible for. Fozzie's not going to handle this particularly well. So Roy comes out for his first number and he plays Rocky Top um, with uh, members of Lubbock Lou and the Jug Huggers. But eventually he plays it with four or five different versions of himself and a split screen trick. <laughs> plays the banjo, the mandolin, the electric guitar, and the fiddle. Rocky Top is, of course, the state song of Tennessee. It also featured in the Kenny Rogers film Six Pack that I grew up loving as a kid. <laughs> um, I'm going to pretend I knew both of these things. Hmm? So I'm going to pretend that I knew both of those things. Oh, you don't, you don't need to know. The, the, the state song thing, sure. You don't need to know about Six Pack. That's just, it's a terrible movie. But it had Anthony Michael Hall, Diane Lane. Kenny Rogers about a stock car racer that adopts like six orphans and they're his pit crew and they end up being his pit crew. Okay. <laughs> anyway. I thought this number was electric because man, this guy can play. It was very impressive. Like his banjo, especially the banjo. I mean, it is his preferred, his weapon of choice, but uh, man, it, I, I thought, I thought this was fun though. Yeah, it's it's a very nice, it's a very warm opener. Like, yeah, I, I had very little concept of who he is outside of him ostensibly being a, a country star, but it was a nice touch. Yeah, I thought it was well done with the split screens. The coordination was really well done. The choreography mm -hmm. when, um, you know, basically the, the screens cut into four quadrants. Of course, it's four quadrants. No, the screens cut into six quadrants. Idiot. So the screen split into four and there is a Roy in each one. And, and they do a really good job of, of orchestrating it where when one of them is playing the other blocks, the, the ones in the other blocks are looking at him playing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's a, a really fun number. And yeah, like I said, damn impressive. Damn impressive as a musician. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top. Rocky Top I don't actively like listen to banjo music, but whenever I watch someone really good play a banjo, it seems superhuman to me. I feel like the speed at which their fingers move. There's a really weird moment then where Waldorf's like, I wonder how they did that. Speaking about the number and then Statler goes like this. And all of a sudden there are three Statlers. Very kind of disconcerting. We will add Eldritch Abominations to the list of things that Statler and Waldorf might be. That's you put that write that down. Yeah, you're you're correct. So uh, we have a nice moment where Roy's coming off the stage and they lock off the camera and they have each Roy with a different instrument walk by, you know, to show to to simulate the idea of four of them coming off, which I thought it was funny. Floyd calls him a man. That Roy Clark sure is a numerous person. He's not wrong. Kermit comes in and he lays down an ultimatum. Fuzzy. Oh yes, sir. Listen, there's not a stagehand in the theater, thanks to you. We have no one running the show tonight. If this doesn't work out. You are responsible for it. 
If anything goes wrong here, Fozzie. Yes, sir. You are fired. You're fired. I fired. Fozzie, of course, is distraught by this. Now, Fozzie should have been fired at least nine or ten or eleven or fifteen hundred, fifteen hundred times by now. But Fozzie's okay with it, right? He's like, "What could go wrong? I mean, the the stage is set, the star has arrived, Fozzie. The audience is happy. The theater's on fire. The theater's on fire." Things are on fire, which I'm ashamed to say I didn't draw the connection to the light being shot out until maybe five minutes ago. The theater is on fire. They never really say where it's on fire, but the theater's on fire. Kermit is real dense in this, by the way. <laughs> I think Kermit is at that point where he's like, I'm not going to help. Like, there are the people who will see you screw up and then try to micromanage while making you feel responsible for it. And there are the people who are just like, well, I've got a patsy. And they dip. And I think Kermit might belong to the, the latter category where he's like, I'm still technically here, sure, but I'm not going to worry about any of this. Kermit has completely shirked all responsibilities for the night. I'm just saying he's a little dense when it comes to the fire. Oh, yeah. Unless he's trolling, which is possible. It's possible he's just playing along. So we get the Swedish chef. He's got this, I mean, just just gigantic slab of dough. And um, he starts kind of uh, working it, and um, then it starts bubbling up, and then it kind of comes to life. And first of all, how fresh is that yeast that he's using if it's coming to life? I'm going to be honest, I've never actually made pizza dough from scratch. Here's what you need to make pizza dough. Yeast, flour, water, salt. Sounds about right. And love. (laughs) And then eventually the dough manages to get the the chef's rolling pin away from him and uh, just bonks him in the head with it. (laughs) Because, I don't know. How else do you get out of a sketch? With a concussion. So this is where Kermit gets real, seems real dense, but this scene is hysterical. Oh, it's great. Kermit comes back and, and, and Fozzie's yelling fire, 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 basically trying to evacuate people. And Kermit's like, what do you mean fire? And Fozzie's like, whoa, 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 there's nothing wrong. Oh, hi. Uh, nothing. I was just saying that uh, I'm glad nothing else is going wrong or I get fired. And he basically tells Kermit and Kermit's like, what's all that smoke from? And he's like, uh, jet exhaust. (laughs) And then he does this great beat where he goes, Kermit's like jet exhaust. And he grabs Kermit's head and ducks him down and then makes a noise with his mouth and goes. You okay? You okay? Oh boy, that was a close one. Those planes get lower every day. And he's like, man, they keep flying lower. Makes no sense. Very funny. (laughs) They, the two of them are so good in this. They're so yeah. good. I think you're. I think Kermit knows. He's just like whatever, man. It's not my theater, really. You know. Like I, I feel like Kermit must have had some sort of contingency plan, but I don't see one come to form. Fozzie picks up the phone and asks how long it'll be till the fire department gets there, and he gets sprayed in the face with water, which is a joke from season one, if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. Now we have one of the greatest pigs in space ever. When we last left the rocket ship Swine Trek, it was drifting aimlessly in space due to a power failure in the control panel. Oh, first mate, Piggy, if Dr. Strangeport can't restore power to the control panel, we'll be marooned in space forever. Oh, no! Well, look at the bright side, my dear. At least you will spend the rest of your days with me. I, I enjoyed it a great deal. The swine trek is drifting aimlessly through space. They've lost power, they've lost steering, whatever. And the only one who can save them is Dr. Julius Strangepork, because he's the guy that knows what the buttons do, theoretically. Julius comes up and is like, I fixed it. 
I fixed the, I fixed, it was just faulty wiring. I fixed it, but I had to use parts from our electric toaster to fix the ship. How would you explain what happens next? <laughs> a sequence of levers are pulled? Yeah, it feels like we took a short trip back to Coosbane for a second. But the idea is they're basically popping up and down like they're in a toaster. Also popping new people in. So whatever Strange Pork did <laughs> probably created some kind of quantum anomaly because we're getting everyone. I think what Gonzo was the first one to show up. Yeah, Gonzo pops up. It's a funny moment. He's like, hey, I'm not supposed to be here, right? Because he's not really in the episode that much. He's got he's got the one bit, I guess. But he's like, I don't even I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. So at first it drops Piggy out and Link thinks that's funny. And she pops back up and then they drop Strange Pork out and think that's funny. And then Link drops himself down and he does not find that funny. He calls for his mommy. And then they start pulling levers left and right. And yeah, uh, Gonzo shows up. Beaker, a chicken, a Kuzbanian the lunch encounter monster, a witch doctor who we're going to meet later, chop liver and even Statler shows up. So that that wormhole he created goes all the way to the balcony. And then of course to tag it Gonzo shows up in Statler Motors box and says I'm not supposed to be here either, am I? <laughs> I just feel sorry for Beaker anytime he shows up because he um, never looks like he wants to be there. <laughs> no, he he does have and then in the second episode he does have a nice moment, I think. Um mm-hmm. until things go horribly awry. So then we get Roy's second number. Now, this is actually a song written by past guest star Charles Aznavour, if you remember Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a big hit for Roy Clark. It's a song called Yesterday When I Was Young. It's a very melancholy, looking back on your life, nostalgia song, whatever you want to call it. Yesterday when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I teased at life as if it were a foolish game. The way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame. It's very well performed and it's well placed in the episode. Like it's the middle number, right? You don't want you don't want this to be your closing number because it's a kind of a bummer. I still say it's probably a little a little too sad for the show. I said it's nicely placed in the episode, but what's very important about this number is that Muppy is with him. Yeah, when's the last time we saw Muppy? It's been a while. I don't know. And they do the they do the Muppy cowboy switch, right, where they bring it, where he comes out with a real dog, and then when they cut to close-ups of him sitting with the dog, it's Muppy. But they do use two different dogs for Muppy. Muppy's still hanging in there, man. Pinky's dog Fufu has not shown up yet. Once Fufu shows up, there's no chance for Muppy anymore. Uh, what do you think about this song, though? I ran so fast that time and youth at last ran out. I never stopped to think what life was all about. In every conversation I can now recall concerns itself with me and nothing else at all. We It made me think of the Twiggy number, actually, because... Specifically because it didn't yeah. feel out of place the way that one did. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was more of an understated sort of uh, thing. I thought he performed it well. Yeah. I, I don't think we see him perform poorly at all this no. episode. No, he's very good in it. Yeah. It's just like, it's a little bit of a bummer or not a bummer. It's just a little, it's, a, it's just a, it's very melancholy song, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was like a, there's no bitterness in it or anything like that. It's no, just, just wistful nostalgia. nostalgia. Yeah. Not entirely out of place, but, um. But yeah, written by Charles Asnavour. The the English lyrics were translated by a guy named Herbert Kretzmer, but it was originally written in French by Charles Asnavour. There are so many songs in me that won't be sung. I 
feel the bitter test Tears upon my tongue The time has come for me to pay Yesterday When I was young so then we get a very funny UK spot. So the UK spot's tied directly into the backstage story this time. It's strange that this would be the UK spot because they show up later in the episode. And I would not have cut this at all. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. I would never have touched this. So Fozzie is, you know, he's called the fire department. He's trying to figure out what to do about the fire, about the place being on fire. And these uh, four firefighters show up. They're four whatnots dressed up as firefighters. Oh, the firemen. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, we're here to audition. Audition? But where's your equipment for the fire? You know, the hoses, the axes? Oh, well, yeah, we brought one of those. You got an axe. No, an act. And what we get is a very fun, I wrote funny, F-U-N dash N-Y bit, where they sing a song called I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire, which is an old kind of big band song. And they're singing that where, and they're singing that while Fozzie is running around behind them and through them trying to work on the fire. So, Chad, during the 90s, I saw a number of movies that were aimed at older people. A surprising number of them were romantic comedies. As we're looking at this particular bit, I realize that this particular setup has been used a thousand times in romantic comedies, specifically including Fireman. The only difference is those guys are usually strippers. <laughs> I know it. I don't know what movie, but I know the scene you're talking about. I feel like it's happened in multiple ones. Where the firemen show up and they're not really firemen. It happened to one screenwriter and it's sort of like that guy that wants a mechanical spider in all of his movies. Like we need to have stripping firemen. I don't know why. It's just, just it's a nice, nice John Peters reference there. Good job. <laughs> Written by a guy named uh, uh, Horace Height. Uh, he was a piano player in a big band leader's songs from the 40s, um, which it sounds like it's a song from the 40s. Uh, Fozzie is just like running back with pails of water and stuff and smoke is slowly kind of taking over the scene. And we're going to that's going to be kind of the running gag from the rest of the episode is that whenever or for the whole episode, basically, is that the, the place is just filling full of smoke. As someone who lived in California for 20 years, I don't find that as funny because I know that smell. I'm of two minds. Because I'm also that person that, regardless of where I sit near a grill or a bonfire, smoke is going to follow me. When we moved here, we have a fireplace. Hmm. And it's taking me a while to get used to the smell because burning wood, when you live in California, the smell of burning wood means something very different. But uh, again, very, very funny number. That was a, a that was a beautiful song you did, and, and I love the one where you did all the instruments too. Well, thank you, but Kermit, it's not really that hard. You know, I come from a musical family. Oh, really? Sure. My dad plays, and all my uncles, and we used to get together when I was a child and play music. So this was like the one moment in the episode where I was like, "This yeah. is a little uncomfortable." Yeah, I know. Do you mean the end? Yeah. 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 Um, Mostly just hearing it in Jim's voice. Or Kermit's voice. So Roy is, um, you know, Kermit's interviewing Roy and they're talking about his musical family and they kind of makes fun of him a little bit for his uh, subpar trumpet playing in uh, Rocky Top at the beginning, which was, you know, intentional, but still. And he talks about he comes from a farm and he's used to all these barnyard animals. And, you know, Kermit's like, oh, well, we got chickens and we got cows and we got pigs. And he starts bringing in all these, all the Muppets and then Roy's Roy basically makes a comment that uh, this looks like a great breakfast um, or, or that, you know, that every, yeah, this is great. I could eat all of these people. And he's, he's kind of joking, but they get really upset. And then Kermit warns him that Roy, 
it may look like a luncheon, but it can soon turn into a luncheon. Fairly clever play on words. Uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, not meant with malintent. I didn't get that read off of it, but it was just like everything, including the uh, the largely Southern context. I was like, this is awkward. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't age well. It's an unfortunate use of the word. So then we get at the barn dance. The one I, de- I identified with the most is the first one, where the two pigs are dancing. Oh, I hate barn dances. Only reason I come is for the door prize. Well, what's the prize? A free ticket to the next barn dance. That kind of feels like life <laughs> to me. There are levels of that one, yeah. I, I was mostly... Your reward of a, of a well job well done is you get to do it again. <laughs> It's true. A little bit like capitalism. The ending got kind of dark, but, you know, in the way that I would typically find funny. And uh, now we do get a second appearance of Black Rooster, but he's played by Jim Henson with a Southern accent. He's no, he's not a Skeksis anymore, which is a little disappointing. I'm sure he'll be a Skeksis again at some point. TR shows up. And yes, and so at the end, there is a joke about a chicken in a ceiling fan. Say, what's your brother-in-law doing up there? Oh, he's trying to start the ceiling fan. It stopped. <laughs> Looks like he got it started. So then we get a really, I think, a kind of interesting moment where we go backstage and Fozzie's got a fire line set up. They're uh, passing down pails of water. I guess the fire's in like the storage room, the prop room, maybe the canteen, maybe backstage, you know, like downstairs. I don't know exactly where it is, but they've got a fire line set up. And in this scene, when Kermit comes in later, you have four Jim Henson characters in the same scene. You're going to have Rolf, Link, the chef, and Kermit all in one scene. Now, obviously, he's only operating Kermit in this case, but still interesting that usually don't see those characters together at all. Kermit comes back in. He's like, what the hell is going on here? And it is a great moment where Fozzie's he's like, what is all this smoke? And Fozzie shoves a cigar in his mouth and he's like, have you any idea what it feels like to be a father? No, no. Pity. I was hoping you could tell me. And he doesn't buy that it's cigar smoke. And so he's like, let me exp- okay now Kermit has to know he's getting his flippers pulled at this point right because oh, absolutely because he's like let me explain it to you he's like how about how about this all the chefs explain it to you so my brother does this thing when he's stressed out in social situations where he'll just pass off the person that's stressing him out to someone else it's uncanny how he does it too because it'll do it like there's a switch that gets flipped he's like oh you should talk to my friend right here and then he dips so then we get the great gonzo and <laughs> Performing a great one. He is going to yodel Rimsky Korsakov, who's an old Russian composer from the 19th century. He's going to yodel some Rimsky Korsakov while riding on a motorized pogo stick, which is basically just a jackhammer, right? Yeah, if you motorize it enough. As Gonzo will learn. And so he basically goes out on stage. He starts pogoing. It turns into jackhammering and he bores a hole right through the stage. And he crashes right through the stage because he's Gonzo the Great. And uh, then Kermit's like, Fozzie, you got to get out here, Carpenter. And, you know, Fozzie's every stage hand at once tonight. And there's a very classic comic bit where where Fozzie's got a long board and Kermit keeps ducking it <laughs> as Fozzie swings it around carelessly. Very classic. And of course, then they they end up with the lights off and Kermit ends up falling into the hole, uh, which is fine, he says, because he landed on Gonzo. Now we have what I think is the most problematic element. I, I'm going to grant you the lynching that that was uncomfortable, but this one was the one that struck me was a song called was uh, Roy's last number that he sings in a, in a barn with the mayhem and some chickens and other animals. His song called Sally was a good old girl. 
Um, this was a sing- 1962 single by American country singer Hank Cochran. It was written by a guy named Harlan Howard. I'm going to say this up front. This song is a lot of fun, and it's real catchy. So, so. On that note, this is probably my favorite performance from him of the night. I have a super messed up sense of humor. I know why the song's a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm not saying it doesn't age poorly. But it is, you're right, it's fun. Sally used to carry my books to school. Sally was a good old girl. She helped me with my homework because I was a fool. Sally was a good old girl. And if you wanted a kiss or a little bitty squeeze, she was always willing and do her best to please. A girl made to love and not made to tease. Sally was a good old girl. There's just a few moments of him saying that she'll, she basically, she's, um, he implies she's a little loose. He says, just calls her a girl made to love, not to tease. And, uh, talks about if you, if basically, if you're looking for kissing and hugging, she's the girl you go to and, uh, that she doesn't deny requests. And like, you know, it's, it's very like the idea is she's a good girl because she's basically subservient is what it kind of like is the, is the non-charitable reading of it. Give them away. Sally was a good old girl. Sally was a good old girl. Sally was a good old girl. No matter what the request, she gave it her best. Sally was a good old girl. It's, it swings though. It does. It's also a great counter. Like there are a lot of people who say music today is just like way more offensive than it was in the past. Like this is older than my dad. <laughs> Listen, you could tweak this. You could tweak this and make it into like a mid '90s rap song. Oh yeah, like attitude-wise, right? Like it's just you're right. Like there are songs that are more problematic than this being written and released today. It's it's not new. It's not old. It, Chaucer was writing smut. It's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but you know. Yeah. No. Th- th- again, the song is. You're right. It's a really good performance. It's a really good number. The lyrics of the song, in my opinion, leave a little bit to be desired in a modern context. We get to the closing and uh, Fozzie's just begging Kermit not to fire him. He should, by the way, but he's not going to. Beg, grovel, please, please. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, thank you. Listen, I'm, I'm really sorry about, you know, the stagehands and, mm. and the hole in the floor the there. Hole, yeah. And on the fire and the rest of it. Fire? We had a fire here? Fozzie just goes, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little cute one. <laughs> a little cute fire. And then I thought, Fo- and Kermit's about to get upset again and Fozzie pulls it off smooth he goes you wouldn't hit me in front of the guest star would you Kermit's like what does that mean he's like ladies and gentlemen Mr. Roy Clark fast on his feet there that Fozzie oh yeah <laughs> really really funny oh and I forgot to mention Kermit is all bandaged up from his fall he does sort of have that like Nelly cheek band-aid from the mid-2000s <laughs> I don't know why that became a look or what that was supposed to communicate I think it just meant you were from St. Louis right <laughs> I don't know maybe uh, and then Roy comes out and he's holding a fiddle and uh, he's play- he's playing a fiddle and Kermit calls him a hot fiddle player. And then the fiddle starts to smoke because it's a hot fiddle. Did you notice he was holding it real weird the way he was holding the fiddle? He was kind of he was kind of shaking it back and forth the entire time. You think they put some sort of uh, like incense in there or something? Not incense. Yeah, but, uh, I think he I think he was told you got to move it around a bunch to keep the smoke flowing mm. because he's very consciously wiggling the thing back and forth. And, you know, if you go back to your go back and watch it. 
uh, dear listener. He's rat- he's holding this thing very strangely, and he's either having some sort of episode, or they told him, listen, you got to keep shaking it to, to get the smoke to come out. Fozzie proves yet again he's probably shouldn't be in charge of anything. No. I found this one to be quite light and airy and fun and joyful. And like you said, interesting because last week took a couple of turns and this turned back already. I think we're going to see the canteen again, but I forgot about the canteen this week. There was a darker timeline in my head where we don't see Gladys or the canteen anymore after the fire. They just like surreptitiously killing her off. It's just their way to kill off some characters. But you never, it's a kid's show, so they're like, we can't say that they died. They just got sent to the Shadow Realm. (laughs) I don't think that's true, but I wish it was. There's nothing more to say about this episode then. got lucky this week. You got Gilda Radner. That's true. She's amazing. Gilda Radner, born in Detroit, Michigan on June 28th, 1946 to Henrietta and Herman Radner. Uh, Her mom was a legal secretary. Her dad was a businessman. Henrietta and Herman? Henrietta and Herman. Nice. She grew up with a nanny that she called Dibby as well as an older brother named Michael. Dibby would be an inspiration for her later Emily Latella character. By her own account, she battled a number of different eating disorders during her childhood and into young adulthood, including the time she would be on SNL. Uh, basically, from the time that she was nine, her mom was probably a part of the problem here because she put her on Dexedrin diet pills when she was 10, which is an amphetamine and a stimulant and probably should not be uh, prescribed for any... I, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I shouldn't say that. But I, I think that the, the spirit behind this, while well-meaning in its way, was probably pretty far off the mark. When she was 12, her father developed a brain tumor, which left him bedridden and unable to communicate until he died two years later when Gilda was 14. She was very close to her dad, so this was likely a, a very... I mean, it would be a big loss in either case, but Depending on the nature of that dynamic between her mom and her dad and her relationship with them, I think this would have been something that would have been pretty traumatizing on top of the other things that were already going on by that point. In 1964, she enrolled at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where she planned to get a degree in education, uh, but she would not finish her time there. She actually dropped out during her senior year to follow her boyfriend at the time, who's a famous Canadian sculptor named Jeffrey Rubinoff. I am not familiar with his work, but I'm also woefully uncultured. Did you say the University of Michigan? She, University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Go Buckeyes. Uh, But she would follow Jeffrey... Rubinoff to Toronto, and that's where she actually made her professional acting debut in 1972 uh, in a production of Godspell, which also co-starred a young Eugene Levy, a young Martin Short, and a young Victor Garber. A very famous production. Was it? Like like a legendary production because of that cast. They were all relative unknowns at that point, yeah? Yeah, yeah, no, it's like it's known as kind of a ground zero for the for some of these comedy comedy greats. 
Um, she would join Second City after that. She would also become a featured player on the National Lampoon Radio Hour from 1974 to 1975, alongside John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Richard Belzer, Bill Murray, Bill Murray's older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, and Rhonda Coulee. Mr. Mr. Santa, for Christmas, could I please have a busy Brenda mystery action vacuum cleaner doll? No, honey. Sorry. Could I have um, a battery-operated dog family? No. Could I Flexi the pocket monkey? No, you may not have Flexi the pocket monkey. Mr. Santa, could I have um, a Ready Ranger mobile field? Oh, I'd one? have to go all the way out to Corvettes to get that. Forget it. What else? Could I get an, just a little tiny Nerf ball? No, no Nerf ball. Could I get a Vic Hadfield hockey game? Oh, a Vic Hadfield hockey game? Yeah. Well, no. Ha! What else? From there, she would be one of the not ready for primetime players. Not ready for primetime players would later become the first cast of Saturday Night Live in 1975. And she was actually the first performer to be cast in the show. She co-wrote a lot of the material that she performed with Alan Zweibel. Um, she would be part of the show from 1975 to 1980, winning an Emmy for it in 1978. And welcome to Baba Wawa at Wodge. We are indeed lucky to have as our guest tonight the great we respected and world-renowned creator of shuttle diplomacy. Sometimes controversial, but to my mind, a weary regular guy. Secretary of State, Dr. Henry Kissinger. Dr. Kissinger, uh, you once said that power is the greatest aphrodisiac. What exactly do you mean by this? Um, she was one of the three original cast members to stay away from cocaine, but she was still battling a number of different eating, or I think she was battling eating disorders at this time. I, I don't know if it was just one or more than one different time. She was offered her own show in 1979 by incoming NBC president Fred Silverman, but she turned it down. That same year, she appeared on Broadway in a one-woman show, Gilda Radner, live from New York. The live performance of the show was generally pretty successful, but a film was subsequently made of the show and an album was released as well. Neither one really performed well. But she would meet her first husband, G.E. Smith, there, and they would be married in 1980. They would divorce by 1982. She was married to G.E. Smith? She was married to G.E. Smith, who was one of the musical directors of Saturday Night Live later on. Yeah, when I was a kid, he was the guy that ran the SNL band. And so their divorce would ha happen in 1982. Something else that happened that same year was Gilda met Gene Wilder on the set of the film Hanky Panky. That would be released that same year. They got really close really quickly. The closer they got, the more her marriage sort of deteriorated. Um, she would marry Jean in 1984, and they would stay married for the rest of her life, which wouldn't be a lot longer after this, unfortunately. In 1985, while on the set of Haunted Honeymoon, which I believe was the third film that she worked with uh, Wilder on, she started to experience pretty severe fatigue and pain in her upper legs. Over a period of 10 months, she received a series of misdiagnoses from doctors. At the same time, Haunted Honeymoon would open and bomb in theaters. I don't think it was in theaters for more than a week. And the tell-all book, Saturday Night Live, by Hill and Weingrad would be published, including a lot of stories about her eating disorders, which was an additional strain because the media is what it is. October 21st of that year, she was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, and she underwent a hysterectomy on the 26th. In March of 1987, 
at Lorraine Newman's 35th birthday party, she would see her SNL castmates for the last time. In September of 1988, Radner went into maintenance chemotherapy to prolong her remission and make it more likely that she would survive. But unfortunately, she would learn three months later that the cancer had returned. On May 17th, 1989, she was admitted to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles to undergo a CT scan. And before she underwent the scan, she was given a sedative, which dropped her into a coma. She would not regain consciousness, and she died three days later on May 20th, 1989. Uh, Jean was by her side when she went. The Muppet Show, Season 3, Episode 4, featuring guest star Gilda Radner, was produced between March 7th and March 9th of 1978. It would premiere in the UK on April 2nd of the same year, and on December 14th in the United States. It was directed uh, by Peter Harris and written by our favorite guys, Minus One. Just... I mean, before we start, it's it's such a great episode, and it's yeah. With with the beginning of the season, we've been seeing them try to grow out, but there's something that I've noticed with the past few seasons of the Muppet Show where they will expand and then figure out once it's expanded or not how to fold it into what they built before. Um, and I feel like this is that sort of synthesis between some of the higher concepts that we've seen in the early part of the season especially with them just taking the, the backstage story off the rails and it feeling like those old episodes, sort of like the last one we discussed a moment ago, did like those old episodes from past seasons. In our cold open, uh, Gilda is there playing her Emily Latella character from SNL. Gilda, what's all this fuss I keep hearing about me doing the muffin show? <laughs> I mean, what kind of a show is it about muffins. Why, the next thing you know, they'll have me doing a show with rye bread or little tiny lovely biscuits. Why, I can't do a show like that. Excuse it's outrageous. Me, I can't excuse believe. me, ma'am. Ma'am, it's not the muffin show. It's the Muppet show. Oh, that's very different. Never mind. Emily used to be her character she would take on the weekend update <laughs> on SNL. And she would like give this giant rambling speech about some subject, whoever was at the desk, whether it was Chevy or Jane Curtin or Dan Aykroyd would correct her on something and say like, basically like, no, no, it's the Muppet show, not the muffin show. She would go. I say there should be more violins on television and less game shows. It's terrible Mr. the way Teller. things work. Mr. What? Teller, that was violence on television, not violins, violence. Oh, well, that's different. Yes. Never mind. This this cold open is straight out of SNL. As Scorch was getting ready to go off, there was a, a bit between her and I think it was Scred. And Scred, yeah. Where Scred was trying to get more time and she was just sort of dodging the question. Scred, they, they decided not to do it. Didn't anybody tell you? Oh, that's just great. That's really great. Boy, uh, how come nobody ever tells us Muppets anything? Well, we're don't laugh. We're tired of being second-class citizens here. All scred don't now. Give me that all scred stuff. I mean, you know, how come we're not in any of the major sketches? Really? Well, I could do news update. I'm capable. Okay. Good evening. I'm scred, and you're not. So from there, we go to our Muppet Show theme. Uh where Gonzo reveals that he always gets butterflies before a show and a giant butterfly 
straight out of someone's acid trip. It's just like, <laughs> not this time. My kids love this. My kids love this. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and my daughter actually goes like, this time the butterfly gets him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy. His butterfly just shows up and clubs him. <laughs> crazy weird. I can absolutely imagine Gonzo telling the other Muppets that this happens and none of them believing him. Like, Gonzo, there are no giant butterflies. I can also imagine it not actually happening, and this is just a peek into Gonzo's mind. From the intro, we go into Eskimo pigs singing Lullaby of Broadway, and they're joined by a walrus, a penguin, a bear, and a chicken. This felt weird. Come on along and listen to the Lullaby of Broadway. The hip hooray and ballyhoo, the lullaby of Broadway. I don't... It, uh, yeah, I know. Is it like a kitchen sink sketch where they just throwing things in there to see if things... Like, it's not bad. It's... I think it's just simply the juxtaposition. Hmm. Right? Like, of these people who live, you know... Now, I think we should be... I don't know. I don't know if careful is the word. I don't... It's that people tend to use Eskimo to cover a wide... Uh, uh, a broader range of peoples than it actually describes mm-hmm. i think is the problem right um they use it to describe all indigenous peoples of of uh, arctic regions it's just the juxtaposition it's just the like the eskimos and their igloos obviously far away from everywhere and they're singing a song that's um, from a from a musical that's talking about broadway it's just it's just kind of a it's a silly it's a silly contrast what's the word incongruous incongruous mm-hmm. um why would they be singing about broadway that's the that's the funny part yeah it's just some eskimo pigs singing lullaby of broadway and then there's a weird moment where like it looks like a criminal or something like pops up from underneath the ground and has made a wrong turn it's like a bugs bunny moment yeah it just it felt like it was a bunch of it's i don't know if it's fair to say it's just non sequitur but it feels like it ran on a lot of non sequitur From there, we we go backstage where Gilda comes out and she's sort of dressed like little Bo Peep, unless there's like some outer context that I'm, I'm missing. She she comes out to thank Kermit. Thank you for letting me do the operetta number. I love operetta and no one's ever given me a chance to do one before. Oh, well, you're welcome. Have you got my parrot? Your what? My parrot, my seven foot tall talking parrot. I respect this bit specifically because it's a nested joke. <laughs> Yeah. And and the payoff on these is weirdly unwieldy at times. Yeah. But she asked if Kermit was able to get a seven foot talking parrot. And Kermit's confused, but. I wrote you in the letter. Yeah, well, well, I got your letter, but I couldn't quite read your handwriting. <laughs> parrot. What'd you think I asked for? Well, I, I wasn't really sure, but I thought it was a. Never mind. <laughs> Seven foot tall talking carrot. So in terms of like Muppet Show Nightmare Fuel. There it is. The carrot's on the list. It's not high on the list because there's way scarier stuff that I've seen, but it's on the list. Yeah, it makes the list for sure. Especially because it's got that attitude where it might just run up and like shiv you while wearing a a three piece suit. 
It doesn't have arms, Nick. That doesn't matter. No, but I'm saying that makes it creepier. Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. She sees the seven foot tall talking carrot. Um, and she lets us know that she wanted to perform selections from the Pirates of Penzance, which, if I'm not mistaken, is that a parody of the title of Pirates of Penzance? Or is Pirates of Penzance a parody of the song title Pirates of no, Penzance? No, no, no. This is a parody of Pirates of Penzance. Like, okay. it's because what they're doing next, what their, their number next is from Pirates of Penzance. So okay. they're going to still do numbers from Pirates of Penzance. She was just making a pun on Carrots of Penzance. Uh, which it, I ex- agree with you. I totally respect and it's totally not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we shift to the next scene, which looks like it came out of the intro for the young and the restless, which I only know what that looks like because I was a sick child in the nineties and mom would watch that. There's a little beauty and the beast to it too. I think Yeah, that's probably a better fit. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights of Sarek from Allerloo to Allerloo. Hold it, hold it, maestro, please. You blew it, my child. They perform the policeman's song and poor wandering one as they make attempts at I'm going to try not to say this fast because I want to. I am the very model of a modern major general. And they eventually find that they're backed by a, a group of singing vegetables. All of the songs are from Pirates of Penzance, which is a Gilbert and Sullivan Savoy opera from 1879. One of their most famous. I've heard the title. His capacity for innocent enjoyment. Sent enjoyment. Is just as great as any honest man. Honest man. Um, yeah, I like the idea here, though, is that because I am the very model of a modern major general is very difficult to sing. It's, if you think it's difficult to say, it's even harder to sing. This, so the conceit is that she tries to sing it and, uh, and she messes it up and the carrot comes and chastises her for it. Now, the carrot, I want to point out, is being played by a guy named Peter Friedman. He's doing the voice, he's singing it, and he's performing it. Peter did like five episodes in season one, just kind of uh, doing some singing for them and some doing some a little bit of puppetry. And he's going to do like five episodes in season three. But this is his like biggest, this is the, the most significant number that he, he gets, uh, which is he gets to do this number with Gilda. In between attempts at Modern Major General, they sing some of the e- easier songs from the musical to kind of warm themselves up. Take out of grace, thy steps retrace, poor wandering one. And, and the, I think the ban- the banter between them is uh, appropriately terribly corny. <clears throat> you can't have serious banter with a seven foot tall carrot. It's a fun bit. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England. And I quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. Military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. But still, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a Muppet melodrama. <laughs> and now, for the last time, my little peach pie, will you marry me? There are a couple of things to bring up. First, Wayne's successful for once, but secondly, there's a Is whole controversy. Now? 
Is he now? <laughs> I would. I mean, he finds a little bit of a mentor in Uncle Deadly. He has a goal when the scene starts, and he does not accomplish it. He's got a goal, but no attention span. And if you're if you move yes. that goalpost and succeed, that's still technically a success. Well, first, Kermit introduces this as, ladies and gentlemen, a Muppet melodrama, which I found interesting. Is this a new thing? Is this like the Muppet Players that they did a couple times? Remember? Oh, that would be interesting. You know, if this is their new thing. There was a slight controversy in the 90s between Disney and the estate of Osamu Tezuka. He's known as the godfather of manga. He's largely responsible for Japanese animation being what it is. But he also created an animation called Kimba the White Lion or Jungle Emperor Leo, as it was called in Japan, which was uncomfortably similar to The Lion King. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah. And watching this bit and waiting for Uncle Deadly to say, long live the king. (laughs) I mean, this is a satire of like old serials, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got Piggy hanging from a cliff. It could, it might as well be her tied to the railroad tracks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's acting very melodramatic. And yeah, and Wayne runs runs in to save the day, and then gets distracted by Deadly's boots. Well, can the Deadly dance? Indeed, he can. And it turns into a number where him and Deadly are dancing, and they step on Piggy's hands and make her fall. With one of my favorite lines, because she, she falls and you hear the splash. I think you might well start with a new pair of boots. In world, Hmm. what is the script of this scene, right? Is Wayne blowing it or is Wayne supposed to be doing that for the comedy? Is all, you know, like, that's what I, you know, I think it's, I think Wayne blows it. I think Wayne blows it, but Wayne blows it in such a way that he crosses the line two or three times and it just works out. We, f- we follow them backstage where Uncle Deadly and Wayne have just bonded over this. Like, this is one of those pairings that you don't expect to, to yield a friendship. But Very I feel weird. like Uncle Deadly's pro- also probably pretty lonely. I don't see him communicating much with the other Muppets. Uncle Deadly's being very encouraging, and he's letting Wayne know that he's he's starting to get it. He's getting it. And then Piggy shows up, and she lets them know that they're both going to get it. She hits Uncle Deadly, but Wayne gets it worse because anytime I have seen Miss Piggy's feet, but she's always wearing heels and you're always catching the bottom of her foot. So I'm anticipating that like a lot of these puppets might have puncture wounds. <laughs> I think they made a joke about that last season, didn't they? They might have. That sounds about right. P- Piggy is not happy with either of the gentlemen and she lays them low. They let her down. In a way that only Piggy can. Then we see the... Return of Marvin Suggs and his Muppaphone playing the song Witch Doctor, which in turn goes a little bit Candyman. Uh, the Witch Doctor shows up and he's mad at Marvin for telling his story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he turns Marvin into a Muppaphone. I told the Witch Doctor I was in love with you. I told the Witch Doctor I was in love with you. And then the Witch Doctor, he told me what to do. He say, say, ooh. I heard this a lot as a kid, mostly because I love it in the chipmunks, so I assume that most people have heard this song, but Witch Doctor was originally written by Ross Bagdasarian, who was known for his stage name David Seville, who in turn was known for creating Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, he was Dave. I didn't realize that Dave's name was actually Ross. He was also the piano player in Rear Window, which is the one Hitchcock movie that I've actually seen. Yeah, that's why I put it in there. (laughs) 
appreciate that. The, the sad, the sad, lonely piano player across the way who finds love with Miss Lonely Hearts, who lives above him. Is uh, yeah, played by David Seville. Uh, yeah, and he's the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. And we get Marvin Suggs doing what he does best, which is beating the hell out of furry little balls to make music. I told you never to tell anyone. Do you think these, like, Muppophones just grow up to become the critters and wreak revenge because they've just been percussively maintained for their entire lives? I don't know. I think this is as big as they get. Yeah, it's probably for the best. I was watching this with my family. My wife was going like, do they ever get revenge on Marvin? And I'm like, no, but karma does every time. <laughs> they never really get to fight back, but the universe fights back for them. What is that quote? I'm going to let karma handle this because if I handle this, I'm going to jail. This next UK spot was a little dull. I, it, so many pigs, man. So many pigs. There's that, but I'm also, it felt like the old lady that swallowed the fly, but maybe a bit less dynamic. Yeah, it was staged a little bit that way, but, uh. They, they sang a song called The Bird on Nellie's Hat, uh, which is an old vaudeville song from 1906. I, there's not a lot, a lot to say about this one. I have absolutely nothing to say about this. <laughs> I wrote down nothing. You don't know Nelly like I do. Sit the saucy little bird on Nelly's hat. Autumn came along. Love's young dream got wrong. We went round to call. Servant with a grin said, She's not in. Nelly's gone away. That's all. There, there's no reason to talk about this when we have the rest of the episode to talk about. Exactly. So we get to go to Muppet Labs, where Gilda joins. I think this is the first guest star that's been on with both Bunsen and Beaker. Yeah, Eustonoff uh, did it in season one. He was with Bunsen. But uh, mm. yeah, this is the first time it's been a trio in the Muppet Lab. And I think Beaker is just happy that someone else is there. Because Bunsen introduces Gilda as his guinea pig. And she's like, I, I, I said, I, you said assistant. And she, I didn't say anything about getting a guinea pig. And Beaker like turns his head and gives a little laugh. <laughs> there is a moment where Beaker's like, <laughs> I know what's coming to you, lady. <laughs> Not me this time. Uh, listen, Dr. Honeydew, you, you said assistant. I never heard you say the word guinea pig. Uh, just put your head down here so Uncle Bunny can work on you. Well, you see, I don't mind assisting, but I'm not crazy about the idea of guinea pigging. Mm-hmm. There you go. Blink. There. I have just placed on Gilda's forehead a single teensy-weensy drop of Muppet's new super adhesive. Now we'll wait a moment for it to get tacky. What are we waiting for? For it to get tacky. Well, another first on this show. How's that? Well, it's the first time we've had to wait for it to get tacky. I don't know why he put it on her forehead instead of putting it on her hand first, but maybe he was trying to be considerate. He puts the super glue on her head because he, he wants was, to stick a, a rope to it so he can dangle her. <laughs> that's just awful. But she tries to put a stop to the experiment, at which point she's unaware that the experiment is already well underway because she accidentally ends up spraying the adhesive everywhere. And I actually, this is one of the few times that Bunsen gets his comeuppance. Yeah. Because everything's collateral in that case. She just sprays the camera, which I thought was funny. That was a nice shot <laughs> where, the, where the glue hit the lens. So Beaker gets stuck. To, I don't know what those things are called. I know that they were in Goonies because they tied uh, Josh. Oh, the che- like the chest exerciser thing. Yeah, like yeah. whatever that, like the spring hand thing. I never see them anymore. It's probably for a reason, but. I think I had one when I was a kid. 
I think they're supposed to like imitate flies or something. Yeah, it's it's just to work out your your pecs. Poor and Beaker looks so betrayed when she gets that stuck to him because he's just like yeah. relaxing. He's like, "It's my night off. It's great." Yeah, and then I, all I got to do is pull a rope tonight. Yeah, um, and that's all he's going to do for the rest of the night is just pull. I love I love that Bunsen in this sketch talks to Gilda. Gilda's like, I don't think this is right. And he ta- he calls her at one point his little Gilda poo. So he's talking to her just like he talks to Beaker. <laughs> he's, of course. She basically, she is Beaker in this. You're right. She is Beaker for the sketch. Bunsen even sees her that way, speaks about her that way. And um, and she still ends up pulling Beaker into it. I mean, there's a good chance that Bunsen is the most dangerous narcissist on the show. When we do our wrap up for season five, we're going to talk. We're going to have on our wrap up. We're going to have like our top five psychopaths. Oh, yes. Top five people on The Muppet Show most likely to commit murder. That's, yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. Animal will unfortunately make the list, but it will not be premeditated. Oh, yeah. No, second or third degree at that point. It's not manslaughter. Anyway, the, the sketch carries on backstage. Yeah, they're all covered in glue. Her head is, her hand is stuck to her head. She's stuck to Beaker. And I guess, is this like self-propagating glue or something? Because it's, it continues sticking to other things, <laughs> other people. It, it does, it does seem to get everywhere. Like literally everywhere. Kermit is on the phone speaking to a Mr. Scribbler, which I assume is Fleet Scribbler from last season. Yeah, well, uh, okay, uh, here she comes now, Mr. Scribbler, and I'll ask her. Agilda! Agilda, a reporter would like to know, what is the secret of your success? Kermit, can I talk to you for a second? Uh, Well, I guess you could just say that she has stuck with it. Kermit tries to hang up, but gets stuck on the phone, and then gets stuck on Piggy, and Piggy is so happy. (laughs) For a minute. For a minute. (laughs) It's so good. Because she's ready for those sweet nothings. And Kermit's just like, no, no, this is the worst case scenario. I do not, of all the people you could be stuck to on that it show. So good. It was so good though. Piggy, I'm stuck on the phone. Now I'm stuck on you. She's like, oh, he wants me. And he's like literally stuck to her. But then like a beat later, she's like, will you, will you, will get away from me? Kermit is long to hear those words. Just. So everybody, everybody is stick. There's, there's glue everywhere. No, I w- I'd like to point out that this is our backstage story, the glue, and it doesn't start until there's nine minutes left in the episode. There is literally no backstage story before this. There's that, but also there's kind like it bleeds over into everything else. Well, yeah, it takes over the rest. It takes over the entire remaining nine minutes. It just runs it all over, which is great. Every joke from here on out is has to do with the glue. This isn't the first time that uh, Bunsen has like upended the show like that. There was that teleportation incident too. The man is a menace. I'm gonna, That's I'm gonna, true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best, J. Jonah Jameson, and declare Doctor Bunsen Honeydew a menace. More pictures of Honeydew. This bald kid that works in the newsroom keeps bringing me pictures of Honeydew. <laughs> so we go to Rolf and Zoot, who are playing a song called "Body and Soul," but. The glue is, I feel like it's self-replicating glue, which is a terrifying concept. Self-replicating and also it's airborne. Right? Like, I hate glitter. This is bad. There's a funny moment, though, where Zoot tries to talk through his... Let's get out of here. Here is a Muppet news flash. The great glue threat is over. The rogue adhesive is under control. 
the rogue adhesive is under control. Like the, like all of a sudden he's breaking. This is very Monty Python where he like <laughs> breaks in with a news flash about what's going on in the episode. That's it was probably an influence. But then, of course, he gets stuck to his chair because the glue is everywhere. Do you think the glue is sentient? I'm a little scared about the glue. Wait till you wait till you hear about the Delta glue. Uh, so we, we go back to Kermit and Piggy and Piggy is open, more than open to being stuck to Kermit like this because he can't get away from her. And Kermit is sort of buckling under the weight of the situation. The band's getting ready to go on, on stage and Floyd points out that Gonzo's eyes are glued to the television set, which is the most obvious pun of the episode. But it is. It is. It's still kind of a freaky image, though, like because I thought about it and I was like, there was that would be horrifying. It was an uncomfortable thing to to picture. Yeah, it was weird. I'm sure he was kind of digging it, though. Oh, he was probably thinking this was one of the better pieces of performance art since the world was sure that he died. And he started selling those autographs. Fozzie pops his head out from between the curtains to introduce Gilda. And he's, of course, stuck to the curtains. Uh, hi, we're having a little trouble back here, but uh, that's OK. That's OK. Uh, let's just give a great big hand for our very special guest star. Oh, no, my hand was stuck. Uh, uh, Miss Gilda Radner. So then when they open the curtains, Fozzie goes flying up into wherever. <laughs> Big laugh from the girls. I'm gonna I'm gonna point that out. I think that was the number one laugh from the girls. Was Fozzie going flying? I think Fozzie is a very light bear. But Gilda performs a song called "Tap Your Troubles Away" with the Muppet Orchestra. But she's still stuck to Beaker. Tap your troubles away. You bounced a big check. Your mom has the papers. She's basically flypaper at this point. Um, like more and more parts of the set keep getting stuck to her and poor, poor Beaker is just getting swung around the stage. <laughs> There's a couple of really good shots where she swings him across the stage. It just flies. No, it's, it's a, also the song's funny. The song's, um, it's from an old musical called Mac and Mabel from 1974, but, um, it's a musical about Mac Sennett. And if anybody knows old silent films, Mac Sennett was the founder of Keystone Studios. And he's the one that like gave Charlie Chaplin and W.C. Fields their first real film work. The humor in it's very dark. You know, it's basically saying like if there's even a line where it's like, well, if people if you're getting your papers served or if you're getting served papers or if you're sick or whatever, just tap your blues away. Oh, the end. It's like if your plane is is basically if your, your plane has stalled and if your parachute cords are frayed or whatever just tap your uh, tap away your troubles or whatever but i mean she just she kills this oh she was amazing <laughs> she kills this and every I, every moment i think she's the, the first guest star to have a backstage story with beaker if i'm not mistaken yeah i think so yeah like i like the idea of her just seeing beaker's puppet and being like that one She just, she just murders this. She was amazing. Like just every movement of her body, every you know facial expression is just dead on. She actually sings the song pretty well, and it, and it's just it's funny. Like she's stuck on everything, and, and she keeps you know she ends up with basically skis on her feet because she she uh, gets stuck to a couple of the floorboards. And, you know, it's really good. What do you think? The I, I don't think there's a lot of property insurance for the theater. I think they just have random broken boards downstairs that they just repurpose every so often. Like there's an on-site carpenter that's just like, yeah, we can 
support this much weight. Well, there on usually this. is, unless the bear sends it to the, to, sends the carpenter to the country. Everyone is stuck to each other and Gilda and <laughs> her hand is still stuck to her forehead. Bunsen's got his head stuck to something. The carrots even there, like the carrots very menacingly in the back there stuck to everybody. But he's also like mean mugging Gilda the entire time. <laughs> like, this is your fault. I was yeah. dignified before you got here. Piggy does not look happy at all. Well, she just wanted Kermit. She didn't want everybody that comes with him. Yeah. Piggy loves Kermit. She hates the Muppets. I think the line between love and hate is probably thinner with Miss Piggy than just about anyone else I can think of. Except for Martin Lawrence. Oh, I did see that movie. I saw that movie <laughs> when it came out. How young was I? <laughs> you were a little young when that came out. Yeah. But we're, we might be the only two people on here that'll get that joke. There was an entire subgenre of movies in the 90s that fit that, that like slid between that and waiting to exhale. And I guess somewhere in there, Tyler Perry got an idea. Although, as I say that, I don't know when he actually started his stage production. So he might have been there first. Wait to Exhale is not a bad movie, though. I don't think I actually saw that one. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, Directed by Forrest Whitaker. Really? At the at the end of it, we see that Statler and Waldorf are also glued to the railing of their box and can't leave. Oh, no! Gilda was a, an amazing guest, though. And... Uh, she was. She was fantastic. Um, it's a very, it's a real good episode. It's a great episode. Next time, I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry is wild about me. We will be discussing episode 305 with singer Pearl Bailey. That one's, I like that one a lot. I know that. That one's really good. And then episode 306 with actor, television star Gene Stapleton. Remember to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring. I don't know, man. Get get fucking vaccinated. <laughs> Please do. I <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're not and you don't have a just 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 do it, man. I'm getting real tired. There are a lot of people I care about that I want to see again. Just yeah. just get the vaccine. So so do that. And uh, I've been Chad. I've been Nick. And thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Hodowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. I thought for once the show really caught fire. <laughs> I thought it burned itself out, same as always. <laughs> <laughs>